Well, here it is, end of January. February is here, and that only means one thing. That means turkeys are coming. And here in the next three or four weeks, turkey season is going to be kicking off down there in Florida. So, since Florida's opening up first, I figured who better to get on here than my good friend, Mr. Scott C. Ellis. The dude knows what he's talking about. He's chased and killed a pile of turkeys. And this episode right here, folks, it's, it's a really good one. We talked about all kind of different stuff. Y'all are going to enjoy it. I really think you will. So you guys sit back, chill out, enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to the Strut South Podcast. This is episode number 24. Today we've got Scott Ellis. I don't, I don't think he needs much of an introduction, but <laughs> just, just for some of y'all that may not know him, he's a three-time Grand National Champion. He's pro staff with Woodhaven, Apex, Mossy Oak, and several other companies, and he's got probably 900 wins uh, under his belt and <laughs> on the stage. Uh, what's up, Scott? Hey, Ryan. Great to have you. Great to have you talking with me today, brother. It's a it's a great time. I love talking turkey, and uh, no better platform than a podcast to just let it let it loose and and talk about the uh, ins and the outs of killing these great birds we live so much. Yeah, 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 man. It's it's getting it's getting close. We ain't got much longer. Uh, a lot of stuff's coming, and turkey season for y'all actually it won't be much further. What y'all got like? basically three more weeks four more weeks something like that yeah it's actually you know i i feel so bad for my northern friends i love the cold weather now the cold weather that you and i are accustomed to and and, and you're even colder up there where you're at in georgia than i am here in central florida but for example today we had like mid 50s it's going to be in the upper 30s tonight and that's that's just good all around spring turkey and real weather really but there's a lot of folks that are in, the, I think, below zero. I talked to my buddy Steve Stoltz today. It was like eight below, and the high was like eight. And uh, so I don't, I hate to rub it in, but yes, you are correct. We're going to be turkey hunting that February the 23rd with my son Jake Ellis. We're going to be hunting um, down in the South Zone on, on Fish Eating Creek, the famed Fish Eating Creek, with a couple good friends of mine. And uh, that's the youth hunt for the South Zone, just so everybody knows. Then the following weekend, which would be, I believe, March 2nd, will be the uh, South Zone opener, which I'll be down in the same area. And we're just hunting my buddy's lease down there. Um, nothing special, but fair bit of birds. And, you know, we're uh, going to put Jake on one, hopefully, and, and let him do his magic. Last year, he caught in his first two birds on his own. He had killed about a dozen before that and a Grand Slam to boot in a single season. But, but he's kind of... I'm really wanting him to take his uh, find his own way. You know, I'm just kind of running the camera. I might coach him a little bit, but I'm just running the camera and letting him do his thing because there's nothing better than watching a young as calling a turkey. I mean, there's just nothing better. I've I've been with a pile of people's first turkeys, and that is beautiful. I mean, piles of people that you know called in their first bird, and that's exciting. But there is nothing better than your own child to call in his very first turkey and then and then after that one after another after another that's exciting that's as good as it gets because 
all the years that I've drug him around since he was about three or four years old to now, and now that he's a proficient caller and has been. Of course, he's a he's a Grand National Pulse champion two years ago. But now he's putting all those calling, calling skills with the wood skills that I've taught him over the years, and he's doing it on his own, and that's, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, which I don't – I really can't speak to that too much. I don't have any kids, but I've, I've <laughs> several – I've been with several people and, and got them on their first turkey. Been with a bunch of guys that never even been turkey hunting and got them their first turkey within the first few tries, and it's pretty awesome when you can do that with your kids and in anybody that's new to hunting. Get them hooked. Yeah, that's what's creating the tradition, the legacy for our, our love of turkey hunting, the tradition that we have had as kids all our lives. And I'm getting pretty old. I'm 44 now. And if you can plant that seed and help somebody out, um, then you have helped conservation efforts for our tradition, our legacy that is known as spring gobbler hunting. They're going to buy licenses. They're going to buy camo. They're going to buy turkey calls. They're going to um, buy hunting licenses in probably multiple states, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if, you, if there's anything that you can take from a first-timer's hunt, it's the, just believing in, and making them have a good time and, and have them hopefully carry on that legacy because they're the future of what we do. Any newcomer? And any kid that's introduced early on are the future of our legacy as turkey hunters. And if you if we don't keep planting those little seeds along the way, you know, we're going to lose traction in the conservation efforts and, and, and legislature and, you know, the Second Amendment. So bring people into the sport of hunting. I hate to say sport, into the legacy, the tradition of hunting, because that's, that's the people that are going to help carry it on and share it and, and pass it on. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll be getting some new hunters this year. Maybe uh, I think I've got a buddy of mine. He's he's wanting to go hunting. He's wanting to do it at least try it. So hopefully, me and him will go this season. And and for y'all, I mean, like you said, with uh, Florida, y'all are hunting here very soon. A um, couple weeks, yeah. Think, yeah. One one thing I wanted to ask was um, hunting in Florida, and and I kind of I really want to go one day. Hopefully, I'm gonna do it next year. But I want to get an Osceola. Um, well, I think maybe, we can't wrap that, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's kind of like kind of. What are your plans? Like, how do you prepare getting ready for the season? Like, what do you? all that good stuff well i mean that's a good question because as you know i competition turkey call um so so the grand nationals is is in well the 13th of february and then a week later jake and i will be turkey hunting so yeah we're running out of daylight literally jake uh after brag on him he won a youth clay sporting clay event last year and won a youth 870 20 gauge and uh, we've drilled and tapped it and put a Picatinny mount on it, or a Weaver base, if you will, and uh, putting the new True Glow, True Tech Micro Red Dot Scope on it. And I'm obviously shooting my Apex ammunition, or he's going to be shooting GT20 Apex number 9s, TSS, and 
got a true glow headbanger choke in there. And outside of all the practicing and preparing, we got to get his gun sided in. <laughs> we 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 got to get his. One of the major things is just shooting your gun, making sure if you shoot optics or you shoot adjustable sights that your gun is on. Um, right now, I'm literally staging camo. Already, already, a couple weeks, three weeks out, four weeks out, I'm staging camo, cameras. Um, again, we got a sight in his gun with his red dot. We've got to we – we're running some calls. He's running calls. Jake is, quote, unquote, retired from competition calling. But he's growing. He's 12 now. He's on, he'll be 13 in July. And we ran calls the other day, and it was mind-boggling because his mouth is getting bigger and his palate is changing as he's growing. And the sounds he's starting to create as that chamber, his palate chamber opens up, he's getting a lot more depth to his calling, and it's really good. I'm like, it's amazing from night and day from last year. So, anyways, we're running calls. We're getting our trips lined out. We're patterning guns. Um, Scouting is obviously a huge factor if you have that option. Now, where we're hunting, I've hunted the last two seasons in the South Zone opener, so I have a pretty good knowledge of the property. Um, you know, you, you start creating that encyclopedia of knowledge so you can ultimately know where to start. But but for the guys that are local to certain areas, those guys down in South Florida are already scouting. I mean, birds are getting ready to start breaking up if they're not breaking up now. And um, they're they're already starting to gobble. I've got reports from people down south because I'm in Central Florida, and for example, tonight it'll be 38 degrees here. It'll be 58 down there, even though it cooled down a little bit here in Florida from this big polar vortex that came through that got everybody else like below zero and everything up in the midwestern states, northern states. It still cooled us down down here, but down there it barely cooled them down. So I mean, these birds at the end of January, you're already starting to experience what these guys in these more colder climates are experiencing in late March, mid-April, late April, getting ready for their seasons to come in. So, um, But like I said, those are some of the things that we're looking at and we're preparing for. Um, taking your turkey vest out. Jake's got a whole new set of camo this year. He's growing every two or three months. I have to get him new camo. <laughs> And it's a, luckily the turkey vest are like a one, the old Tom vest he uses. He's been using it since he was the seat was about to drag the ground on the back end of him. <laughs> but but you know a great a great tip is is truly to go through your vest and make sure you identified all your stuff, your scratch pads for your pot calls, your chalk for your box calls, um, setting up your call case for your mouth calls, making sure all your mouth calls are good because chances are from last season there's not a lot of those calls that are going to be real good anymore and you're going to have to go through them and make sure you can throw out the old ones that are no good, put some new ones in there, um, make sure you got your thermosel down here in Central Florida, <laughs> um, toilet paper, you know, so you go through your vest and check all your inventory, your vest, and check your vest and make sure all the things that you need for that are essentials for your turkey season is there. And another thing is just put it on there and take a minute to kind of memorize where everything is, especially when you get like a new vest and you start moving all your goodies around. I can't tell you how many times I've got a new vest on the on the beginning of the season from la, from the last year, and and the pocket configuration may have changed a little bit or something, and and things are in different pockets than I remember them being in. So check your locator calls. Make sure your outhooter is hooting good if you don't use your natural voice. Make sure your crow calls grow, is is crowing good. Um, go through inventory your whole vest and make sure everything is in its right place and you know where it's at when it's crunch time and it's time to, to rock it, you know, at daybreak. 
because you don't want to be fumbling around trying to find something that you didn't that you knew was there the year before because you've changed the position. So that's some of the stuff that we're preparing for right now to get ready for uh, for the season. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing I will say, um, which I'm we're not really necessarily going over what you need in your vest, but right. One thing I like to take, I like to make sure that I put it in my vest before turkey season starts is a pair of snips. Oh yeah, absolutely. To me, yep. those are. I'd, I'd rather go in the woods with no calls. Snip. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Well, I'm guessing you can use some natural voice calling then. If you're if you're going with no calls, I'm guessing you can yelp with the spread yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, at least a little bit. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully he'll be an easy bird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that's a great that's a great item that you always uh, and uh, you know I carry a vest. I mean a wing in my vest. Um, I carry again pot call stuff, box call chalk, thermosil, toilet paper, bottle of water. You know, a, a snack or two, extra shells. Don't ever discount having an extra shell or two in your vest. But yeah, I mean that. Okay. But those snips are really, really critical, especially in the woods that you and I both hunt. From from where you're at in yeah. Central Georgia to me, all the way down here in Central Florida, we hunt some of the same kind of woods. Florida, I would say, is a little more diverse because we'll have cypress heads, we'll have live oak hammocks, we'll have pine, planted pines as well. We'll have pasture. And those snips are very critical because I, I don't use a blind. Um, I set up on the base of a tree. And I taught Jake to yep. do the very same yep. thing. And it's always great to be able to snip something out of your way that's in front of you or to snip foliage that you need to make a little makeshift uh, natural blind, if you will, to, to conceal you a little bit on the base of a tree. Yeah. Um, now, I guess still talking about getting ready for season and stuff with y'all, um, with it being Florida and it coming in so early, which it, it probably we were talking about it right now, it's it's cold, but it probably doesn't get super cold that often in Florida. Right, right. But if it does, like, do you think the cold that cold air affects them for the better or for the worse? Well, you know, I've always been under the the uh, theory that. A little bit of cooler weather, extended cooler weather, does not hurt us down here um, because it prolongs. A, it can prolong the breakup period, which maybe puts those gobblers a little more in tune to the opener as opposed to sometimes being in fall flocks still, or ba- not fall flocks, but the bachelor, the gobblers still bachelored up. Now, um, there, you know, b- from a biological standpoint. What actually changes the turkey's testosterone level or gobbler's testosterone level is simply the the length of the day. So as his retina takes in more and more and more daylight, that's going to trigger him into breeding more than anything. But I've never I've never frowned upon a little bit of cooler weather in Florida. Um, I think it puts the season a little bit more in tune, in tune with the opener as a, as opposed to them being broke up and, and and already bred out sometimes by the time the season even starts, and that can be yep. uh, that can be a tough fact. It can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. It just depends on how the season's time and how the breakup occurs. But if they're not completely broken up, you know, when you go into your season starting, that can be a lot tougher if they're still bachelor enough. You at least want you at least want the gobblers broke up good when you're starting your season. Now I have called in bachelor flocks 
in the uh, South Zone in Florida earlier season. And they all come in Goblin. They're still buddied up together. They haven't they haven't established pecking orders yet and broke up and spread out. But ultimately, it's uh, it's better when they're broke up and there's multiple gobblers in multiple areas. And that means to me either they're going to have a harem, which may may prove difficult to hunt, or they have their the, the dominant birds have their harems and the subordinates are out looking for hens. And if they're out looking for hens, then you know as well as I do, you're in a good position because those are the birds that ain't got no ladies, and those are the easy ones to call. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I know. I do. I do like to. I like for it to stay cold too. I, I want it to stay cold. Well, for us, the season starts March. It's usually like the third weekend. Of right. March. Right. And like to. I like for it to stay cold until. That, right. that week right before turkey season because to me I think it like it does exactly what you're saying I think it kind of it kind of holds them off a little bit right 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 doing, doing their turkey thing I guess and if you can catch them and, and just in corroborating what you're saying if you can catch them right as they break up from those bachelor flocks they're out looking for hens they're trying to gather hens and that makes them, to me, a little bit more call susceptible as if, as if they've been broke up for a week or two and they've already started to establish themselves with hens, then that can be a little more difficult. You're, you're In that point, I'm looking for subordinates, honestly. I'm looking for gobblers without hens. Unless I can call that hen flock over and bring the gobbler in tow, I'm looking for those birds that have not gathered hens yet. So that those are going to be the ones that's easier to call, period. Right, right. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I, and I think... This was because of the timing. I remember one year um, it stayed pretty cold all the way into turkey season, and it was like March. Right. I mean, we'd done been four or five days into the season, and uh, it was super cold. It was like 20 degrees. It was, right. on, my wedding, it was on my wedding day, and uh, I went hunting that morning. My wife was... <laughs> And uh, and uh, she uh, she's in there screaming at me right now, but she uh, <laughs> she let me go hunt that morning. Well, me and my brother went, and it was like frosty, ice everywhere. But man, we heard probably eleven or twelve different birds gobbling on just a forty acre piece of property, and they they were gobbling their wow. head off. And I, I think Looking for hens. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it was because they had just hit that that breakup point or they were still kind of grouped up but they were about to start breaking up right and you know what just to interject what i love about those those colder winters especially here in the southeast is i think it it will make a better late season hunt because it, it has it has prolonged the breakup a little bit and i think very often when they get to like you did on the opening weekend you're hearing birds everywhere um you'll catch the gathering phase which will be earlier in the in the first couple of weeks three weeks of season and you enjoyed there in georgia y'all have a long turkey season of course all the way in the may mid-may and i think that if that cooler weather persists it will end up allowing you to still get on birds that are hot later in the season that's what i've always found yeah yeah i mean because i think one thing it does too it actually it makes it a little bit easier to hunt with terrain sure. and the foliage and how how green everything gets 
and I think because that's that's the biggest issue with hunting here. I know is once it gets to third fourth week of April, it's it's pretty dang thick in the woods. Right. A lot of times them turkeys they sometimes they won't they ain't gonna want to travel too far. Once it gets right, they've established there's there's smaller areas during the spring that they have. Right, I agree 100. percent Yep. Yep. Well, speaking on that, trying to call in birds. Um, what are your thoughts on using decoys? Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I um, I'm not a decoy person. Um. I'll try to make this a short version. Um, I learned to hunt Osceola turkeys on public land in Central Florida back in the mid-80s. <clears throat> and that was before the big decoy explosion. Now, people have been using decoys for, for a number of years. You know, for years and years and years, the old-timers even talk about stuffers back in the old days and, and cork decoys painted up and whatnot. But but ultimately, the decoy explosion, I was going to, I would say honestly, was the early 90s. So 24, yeah. 25 years ago, probably. And, um, I learned to hunt birds before that explosion. And I learned to, that set up and realistic calling was what was killing turkeys for me. Um, that's how, that's what prompted me into competition calling at a young age is I wanted to sound as much like a turkey as I possibly could. And the more I sounded like a turkey, the more turkeys I killed on pressured areas when guys were not as accomplished as callers. Now, their woodsmanship skills might have been great, but they didn't have the calling with the woodsmanship skills. So you couple great calling and realistic calling. And when I say realistic calling, I don't mean competition calling level. I just mean you're proficient in the turkey vernacular. You can you can make any turkey sound and any any turkey vocabulary at any given point that you need to, and that's understanding the language as well, what the calls mean, not just calling at a bird, learning to conversate with a bird. So right. I learned real quick, long, long time ago, that a good setup, and the way I hunt without decoys is this, it's this simple. I, I play a game called hide the hen. That's what I've been coining it at for you, coining it, that phrase for years. And hide the hen is simply using the terrain and using the woods to make a setup that where that bird has to come look for you, okay, and search for you. He doesn't, he can't see you through the big hardwoods. He can't see you in a field because you're inside the wood line. He can't see you um, in any part of the woods until he gets close enough to be in gun range. And when he does make that corner on that road because you set around the corner from him or you set up around the edge of a thicker piece of woods that where it opens up where you're setting, he cannot lay eyes on the hen he's hearing. So either he comes searching for you, which in my opinion requires more real realistic calling, or he doesn't pay you any attention at all. But if he does pay you attention, he you engage him, you communicate with him, you get him fired up, you get him coming. When he makes his appearance in that little open area you picked, you always set up when he makes his appearance, he's in gun range, and then guess what? It's time to pull the trigger, he's dead. And that that that's the easiest way I can simplify the way I learned to hunt turkey. Set up and good calling to make make the to make the magic happen. Um, I never give that gobbler the option of seeing me from where he should see a hen from long distances. That's the key. 
when you set up without using deeks, you have to put yourself in a place where he cannot see you from he cannot see where he should see the hen from long distances. And when he comes yeah. to take that peak, he's in gun range. Now, on the on a side note, you can put deeks out in places. There is a time and a place for deeks. People have tons of success with decoys. I'm not knocking decoys by no means. Um, and they're very effective, especially in bigger open timber when you can't use terrain or a bend in the road or a field edge or whatever to to hide yourself. Then people put decoys out, and they can be effective, very effective, to pull that bird on into gun range because he hears the hen he should see, and he sees the decoy, so he sees the hen he should see. And that that's why decoys can be very effective. So, But I learned to hunt the other way. Like I said, I learned to hunt by using the terrain and using the setup. And um, it's proved very successful anywhere I've hunted, any subspecies I've hunted, from Florida to New York to to Idaho and Oregon to Texas, and then back around to Florida again. And, and it's worked everywhere I've ever gone. Now, I'm not saying – I've killed a few birds in front of decoys. Usually it's because it was a last-ditch effort, or the guy I was hunting with happened to have a decoy because I don't carry them. But um, I can give two great examples um, – in the last couple of years, two great examples. I killed a Goulds in Mexico with Jay Scott, and the first bird I killed, no decoys. Called him right in, no deeks. It was a beautiful hunt. Killed the turkey 25, 30 yards. It was awesome. The second bird, the bird we roosted the birds. We were set up, I don't know, 150 yards from them. We were in a place we knew they should fly down, and Jay talked me into putting a Jake and a hen out. He goes, just try it. Ghouls are very decoyable. They're just, they, they just work to deeks very well. I don't think we needed the decoy to kill the turkey, but he flew down and he saw the Jake. He came to the Jake. He knocked the Jake off the stake. He boogered. It's on my show, Hunt Quest. Um, I just aired the show on YouTube on my show, um, two weeks ago. So it's on there. If you, if you Google up on, or do the search engine on YouTube, Scott Ellis Gould, you'll probably find that hunt. And Jay Scott posted it as well, but, um, the other, I was hunting with Shane Simpson from Calling All Turkeys in Wisconsin two seasons ago, and we were set up blind calling in a spot in Wisconsin, and we finally, after sitting for about an hour, got a bird to gobble. Turned out it was two gobblers, and they skirted us out in this big field, and we were set up off the field, which I love to do. We got up off the field with a little bit of cover to hide ourselves. Well, those gobblers skirted us, and they just – I got them to gobble a few times. They weren't paying any attention. Shane goes, I got this Jake decoy. Do you want me to belly crawl it out there? We had a little bit of cover where he could make a move on these birds. We had some uh, uh, some some brush in front of us and some foliage. And I go, it ain't going to hurt anything. They're leaving anyways. So Shane belly crawled the decoy out there about 25 yards in front of us and belly crawled back. Birds never saw the motion, saw the movement. We didn't booger the birds. Then I started Jake yelping at the gobblers. Very effective call we could probably talk about later if you wanted to. But I started Jake yelping, yeah. deep, slow, slow rhythm yelps, and it caught their attention. And then they saw the Jake decoy, and then they, they, they honed in and locked in on the Jake decoy and came over with the Jake yelping, and I killed the bird. So, anyways, that's two examples out of a pile of turkeys that's been killed for me in the last – Oh, gosh. Uh, the last time I used decoys was honestly over about 12 years ago with my buddy Steve Stoltz hunting Osceola's here in Florida right when the strutter decoy came out. And so I, uh, I'm i not affiliated with any decoy people. So I went to Bass Pro and bought one of the redhead strut decoys 
and we just experimented with them, and they were pretty deadly. I am not going to lie. The, the, the strut, I, could we have killed them without them? Probably. But they definitely gave them another visual to walk into, and a couple of the birds that we did this on were in more open areas where they could see long distances. So that's where definitely a decoy can play a, a it can be very favorable. Favorable is is putting them in more open areas when when you're you're really if he's just not coming to you because he hears sexy hen calling, he at least can see and lock eyes on what he thinks is making those pretty hen sounds. So yeah. Now I will say this: I, there might be some people out there asking this question right now when you were talking about <clears throat> hiding yourself. Right. Some people might be saying, "Well, why do you why do you want to hide?" And I'll answer that, and that's because I don't think people understand. A lot of people, I mean, I'm sure every a lot of people do, but some people probably don't. Is that with turkeys, the hen is supposed to go to the gobbler. Right. That's to him. That's what's naturally supposed to happen. So what you're hoping to do is you want him to get excited enough to where he's like, all right, well, I ain't going to wait on her. i got to go find her. Right, right. And that and that goes hand in hand with understanding the, the vocabulary and the language of the wild turkey. And that's where you, yeah. if he's not wound up, I try to wind him up. I cut real hard at him. I excited you up to him. I try to get his attention to change his mood, to, to pique his interest, if you will, um, and set that mood. Um, because a lot of times, a lot of guys are very apprehensive about calling. They'll have a bird that's very far off. And, and this is a great convert. This leads into a whole other tangent here. But distance from the setup and the bird gobbling is a very key factor in how I call to that turkey. If I'm closer to him when I strike him, I'm not going to call as aggressive at first, at least at first, because I may not need to because he only has a short distance to come to cover a little bit of ground to find the sexy hen he's hearing. But if he's way off, I'm going to get a lot more excited, and I'm going to get after him, and I'm going to scald him and cut real hard at him and try to get his attention. And then a lot of times once I get his attention, I'll shut him down and play coy with him to make him think that the hen that he got all fired up lost interest. It's cat and mouse. And if you – if right. you it's just like – and I use this analogy a lot. Um, if a guy if, – if a guy's talking to a young lady – Young man talking to young lady, and she's he, she's giving all the right signals, and then she shuts him down and acts like she's disinterested in him. What what will a guy do? He's gonna run, or yes, he's gonna want it more. <laughs> right, right. He's gonna try harder. Yeah, exactly. He's gonna want more, and that's why I love to get him fired up and then shut him down. That's a tactic I use year in year out. I get him fired up and then shut him down. So going back to your original statement. I think what you're talking about goes hand in hand with really realistic calling, um, so that you're making him, you're, you're peaking his mood, you're getting him fired up, you're getting him wound up to where he can't resist it and he's wanting to look for that hen. And that goes hand in hand with, 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 uh, uh, taking, feeling out his mood and, and being able to talk aggressive to him if needed or even play coy and shy if needed. So I think I think Will Primo's coined the phrase years ago, taking his temperature. I call it taking his pulse. Yeah. You know, if his pulse is yeah. real low low key, I'm going to try to bring that pulse rate up and get him excited. If he's really excited to the point where he's gobbling his brains out, I'm going to bring his pulse back down and quiet up and get coy and I'm going to cluck and purr and whine and do soft yelps. So you're playing off his emotions. 
But all of that right. is key to understanding the language and being able to produce those calls and, and understand when to make those calls, not prematurely. Don't start fucking and purring at a bird 200 yards that's not real fired up. That's not going to do you any good. At that point, you're going to have to get more excited, fast, fast rhythm yelps and cutting real hard to get his attention and getting turned around. That as well can be can go hand in hand with even changing the sound of the voice of the hen to make it sound like a different hen. If you get yeah. if you get very very proficient in your calls, you can sound like a multiple hens on one diaphragm. Or if you don't even do that, you can run two calls at once, or you can go from a mouth call to a pot call to a box call to a trumpet to a tube call. And just he, he's thinking, there's my gosh, there's three or four hens over here that are very interested in what I'm doing. And that may be what it takes to get his pulse rate up, if you will, and then bring him over to, re, like you said, to reverse nature, essentially. So it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a lot more to it than yelp, 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 cluck, cluck, cluck. You know what I mean? It's a lot yeah. more to it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, like, and that's kind of what I do. I mean, I'm, I might be backtracking a little bit here, but w- with the decoy thing, like. I mean, and I use decoys, and right, but but I do not use a hen decoy. Okay, so in a way, in a way, I still kind of hide the hen because I'm the hen. Because right. I don't want to call it. So if I do, which I don't, and I don't use decoys every single time I hunt. It, I, right. I don't use, especially like on public land. But right. To me, that's what I do. I just if, if I use a decoy, I'm going to put a Jake decoy out. Right. To me, what I'm hoping to ha- for to happen is, if he does come out there and he wants to lock up or something, if he does see that Jake, he's going to think, "All right, well, there's already a dude down here with a girl that I'm trying to get with." So, and it's a Jake. Right. It's a juvenile. It's a juvenile. It's a Jake. It's not even a mature bird. Yeah, because he's out there strutting. He knows, or in his mind, he thinks he's he's the dominant guy, or he's the big dude on campus, you know. So if he right. sees a turkey down there that's younger than him, he's like, "Oh man, I got this in the bag," so he's gonna run down there. I mean, it doesn't work every single time, but it it works. It works pretty well. Well, and that goes hand in hand with what I said earlier when we talked a little bit about Jake Yelpin maybe 15 minutes ago. Right. And that's a great call. And it's not hard to duplicate a Jake. Um, and, and a couple key thoughts when you're Jake yelping, which is what you're generally going to get unless they're Jake Goblin, which they do sometimes. But if you're going to Jake yelp, and I've, I've got a mouth call here, and it, it's, well, it'll sound what it sounds like over the digital media here. But the biggest thing when you're Jake yelping is just to back all the pressure off your call, almost no tongue pressure. And I'll demonstrate hen yelping, and then I'll demonstrate a Jake yelping how it's easily is created, and you and I breath the word, word association here, and I breath the word like chonk, 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 and you're taking all the tongue pressure off. So let's hen yelp, let's hen yelp here. I've got my, my Ellis Woodhaven split V here, and basically normal pressure, you're going to do your hen yelp. You're going to... That's more of a mid to high tone. Just a basic yelp. Now, when you Jake yelp, all you're doing, and you can do it on, you can do it on a box call even with lighter pressure. You can do it on a pot call by going to the middle of the call, and with a diaphragm, all you're going to do is slow down that rhythm a little bit and take all your tongue pressure off and breath the word chomp. 
almost like a dog barking. Yeah. As opposed to a hen yelp. And I often will do hen yelps, and then I'll have the Jake answer with the same call. And you can, again, do this with a pot or a box call. Just remember pressure. Lid pressure to the calling surface and move the call on a pot. Oh, that's on a box call. On a pot call, move it to the center of the call. No sound. And you can emulate both a hen yelping and then a Jake's answering. And then if you want to, by golly, throw your Jake decoy out there and he sees this interaction between a Jake trying to slip in to his hot hen he's been talking to, it can be death on a on a gobbler. It can be death on a gobbler, no doubt about it. And you can do the same thing without any decoy, quite, quite honestly. You can do those Jake yelps answering the hen, and, and it's a great last-ditch effort to seal the deal. You know, you, you this is my thing. I'm going off on a tangent here, but remember this as a turkey hunter, as we're talking about learning the language and setups and all this stuff. If you have 30 or 40 tricks in your little bag, start with the basic stuff, and then if that bird hangs up and he doesn't want to work to the basic stuff, that's when you might intensify your cutting and yelping. You might get really loud, aggressive as a nasty hen. You might back it back down. Another great call for me, is no calling at all. Go quiet on that gobbler. Yeah. From there, if that doesn't work and that and you shut down on him for five or ten minutes, it's hard to do because all we want to do, I mean, I'm as guilty at 30 years plus of turkey hunting as we love to hear him gobble, but if you can go quiet for five, ten, twelve minutes, it can be death. From there, you might want to go ahead and try your Jake Yelps with the hen answering. From there, you might want to stage a fight. You want to do some fighting purrs and then beat a wing on your, or your hat on your arm, a wing or your hat to simulate wing beats like two jakes are flogging over here where they heard this in. From there, you might want to go to Goblin. From there, you may want to go to Kiki Runs because he's got hens with him. You may want to... My point is, and we could talk about this for hours, but just yeah. have a lot of tricks in your up your sleeve to employ. Always start with the basic stuff and then get more advanced with your, your uh, techniques and your scenarios as the bird hangs up and doesn't want to work to the basic stuff and come right in the range. So it's, it's you know, I got off on a tangent there, but, again, it's a lot about learning the language of the bird, learning how to, to react and to his moods and, for, and to get him to react and change his mood from your calling. Or it could be a reposition. It could be challenging him as another gobbler and gobbling at him. It could be staging a fight. But the more you have – and here's the thing. that Here's the beautiful part about it. And this is what I tell people. If you do this enough and then start having success with all these advanced tactics, we'll call them, outside of the basic stuff you do, cut, cut, yelp, yelp, cut, cut, yelp, yelp, you're going to start, if your memory is decent, you're going to start building a library, an encyclopedia, if you will, of all these different scenarios, and you're going to find that you match a mood of a gobbler and a particular gobbler in the way he's acting to something that's worked for you. And a lot of times you can match that one technique, that one scenario, to what he's doing, and it will work. Now, it doesn't work every time. I'm not saying that. But if that doesn't work to something that has worked before, then you go on to the next and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And that's how guys become turkey serial killers and not just turkey, mild-mannered turkey hunters, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> turkey serial killers. Um, well, you keep, I mean, you just, all this stuff that you're saying, you want to, 
you said you went off on a tangent, but that's completely fine because I mean, you, you just keep giving me stuff to think about and stuff to ask and questions. And <laughs> but, uh, wow, I'm glad, buddy. Uh, now, since we've been on calling, we'll kind of touch on this a little bit, and then we can move on okay. to something else since it won't be all calling. But Sure. But I don't guess there's any harm in that. But um, No, no harm. <laughs> you, you were saying everything we've been talking about so far about calling has mostly been calling to a gobbler when sometimes which actually more times than most you're probably going to be calling to a gobbler that's already got hens very often so, that's right yeah if you could what are, what are some of the things you do you actually talked about this and it, all the listeners out there y'all should go check it out on hunt quest hey did, you did a live a few days ago right talked about this and uh what what are some of the things you do when you're trying to call to the hen? You know, I'm glad you asked this. I love I love giving my little my little dissertation, my little theories that I have. Um, so a gobbler is a dominant gobbler. That gobbler has a harem of hens. You identify that he has hens, and you know you're playing against a stacked deck basically <laughs> um, when he's got hens. Um, Here's the thing that I love to do and to, to take into consideration every time I engage a gobbler that has hens and I realize there's a pretty good chance I'm not going to call that gobbler. I'm going to have to call his harem over. Remember this if you remember anything. A, a, a harem of hens has a boss hen. That boss hen, in my opinion, my humble opinion, has one of two personalities. Okay, she's either going to be coy and shy and not confrontational, or she's going to be dominant, aggressive, and very confrontational. Now, you hear this time and time again, and it does work from time to time during the spring, is that you hear guys talk about, I yelped, and that hen yelped back, and I started cutting on top of her and, and calling on top of her and got her mad and aggravated and pissed off, and here she comes. That's great. That's great. If that is the dominant, aggressive um, confrontational hen. But remember, like I said, the other hen personality you're going to encounter, and I'll get to why, you know, when you've got this, this coy, shy hen personality, is because she's the one that goes the other direction and drags the gobblers off. So, so this is what I'm saying to do. When you realize he has hens, if you can get those hens talking or that boss hen talking to you, be civil to her. Always assume I know everybody says don't ever assume, but this is something that you can't go wrong assuming, is that she is the coy, non-confrontational, non-dominant, aggressive hen, okay? If you just talk civil to that hen and you cluck real light and you yelp a couple times and she clucks back at you and she yelps a couple times and then you start a nice civil conversation and you're just being, you're being inquisitive with her. By not getting aggressive and starting the cutting and all the excited yelping and the fighting purrs too quick, if she's that coy hen, she may come over just to say, who is this new girl on the block? She seems like a nice chick. I like her. <laughs> so I'm going to come over here and visit. Now, if that hen immediately starts responding with cutting and excited yelping and aggravated purring and she's ticked off at you, then you can quickly elevate your calling. But always, 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 Start that conversation very civil. 
soft clucks, bubble clucks even, and very soft yelping only escalate the aggressiveness if she escalates her aggressiveness. And to, and to throw a sidebar in there, Ryan, another great thing to do that I've had a ton of success with and a lot of people overlook it because they probably don't learn to use the call or know the call, and that's the kiki run. I've had a ton of success with that hen that's not aggressive and not dominant and not confrontational by kiki running. And I think my theory, this is my theory alone, is that a lot of times that boss hen might be a, might be a two-year-old hen. She might be a relatively young hen. And if you start, if she's, and she's brooded, she's reared a clutch of eggs that hatched into poults that became Jake's and Jenny's, and she raised them. So, so every hen, in my opinion, has some degree of maternal instinct. And especially in the spring, you know, they, they just broke up, okay? And, and they just established their pecking orders. It, a lot of times I'll key key run to that hen before I even get aggressive to her to just make her think that there's a lost Jenny over here that's looking for company. And, and sometimes, again, this is my humble theory, that you're capitalizing on that maternal instinct that she's looking for, well, who is this little, who is my baby over here? Did I lose one of my Jennies? Oh, my gosh, it almost takes over the fact that that hen yeah. is looking for that lost youngin, and will sometimes yeah. also come over and bring the flock. And it was never challenging. It was never confrontational. It was never aggressive. It was just simply turkeys being turkeys, and turkeys are very gregarious. They're very social. So you're capitalizing on that maternal socialism, if you will, of a of a mama hen, basically. So going back, we went to the sidebar. Just start that conversation conversation civil. If you have to, if you can step it up because she steps up her game and she gets aggravated, then step it up. If she stays civil, you stay civil. You'd be surprised how many more flocks of hens that you'll pull over, harems of hens you'll pull over that goblin toe. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, perfect, perfect example of that was it. It was last season, right? Season one? I mean, uh, episode one, I think? Or episode one of Conquest. Last year, my first show out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's like, hands down, like, everything you just talked about, that's exactly what that hunt right there was. Oh, my gosh. Please go back to that hunt, guys and girls. I'm not I'm not plugging my show, but if you want to see a perfect example, like Ryan said, that hen flew down with that gobbler. I never cut at her. I never got aggressive. She started yelping to me. I yelled back to her. She yelled back to me. I yelled back to her. She clucked a few times. I clucked a few times. I never – I can promise you if I would have started attacking her right when, right when she flew down, what would have happened? She would have been gone. She would have took that gobbler the other direction. There's not a doubt in my mind if I would have got aggressive on that hen, she would have left. She was looking for company, and that has been the demise of a many a gobblers for hens that are just looking for company. And if you don't – if you don't offend them right off the bat and become confrontational right off the bat, it can be very, very deadly. It's a perfect example of it. The best one you could ever show, and it's right there on video. Because that, that, that hen, I called that hen up, and that gobbler followed yeah. up. And Olivia Chancey, my best friend's daughter, not wife, his daughter killed that turkey. And uh, it was a perfect example of just calling in a hen. And that's just one hen. That wasn't three or four or five or six or seven with a boss hen, that was just the hen that was with that Tom. It's beautiful. Yeah. It was it was beautiful. <laughs> he was yeah, he was he was completely clueless. He didn't even know he didn't know what was going on. No, he, he just knew that hen was walking away from him and he was gonna follow her. Yep. That's yep. all he cared about was her. That's right. <laughs> and 
Now I will. I want to ask this right quick, and we'll move on to something else. The um, I've always wondered when you see these, you see these hens. It's not. It's they're almost semi-aggressive. Okay. It's like they're just when they come in, and a lot of times it's like just a lone hen by herself. When they come in. You haven't been getting aggressive with her, and she right. comes in for your setup, and she kind of just they just kind of walk around, right? They get comfortable, and then but the whole time as they're coming in, they're they're not really doing any excited cutting. They're just going right, you know, and even purring, like, maybe even light light purrs, yeah. not, aggra- not aggravated purrs. That yeah. to me is a hen that's inquisitive and looking for company. And that's all that is. She's never getting loud and aggressive. She's not getting over the top of her cutting. She's not showing a heightened state of emotion, of anger, basically. In my opinion, that hen is looking for company, plain and simple. Plain and simple. And too bad she don't have a gobbler with her every time she comes in like that. But <laughs> Yeah. Because to, to me, it's like, and sometimes I've had decoys out. Sometimes I don't even have a decoy out in this the same thing's happened, and they'll they'll come in doing that, and then once they get up there and they realize, oh well, let's just let's, let's chill over here. So, and then they'll just they'll just start feeding, and they'll be comfortable, and they'll just stand there. They'll just hang out. Yeah, yep. and just probably what trying to wait for that other hen to show up. Where you at, girl? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, she's just she's just gonna hang out and see if that other hen that she was talking to shows up. And that and that and that's if effectively what happened to that hen and gobbler that came in, in in tow on that season one, episode one show you were talking about because I didn't have a decoy up. I had no decoy up. We were, we were, and we were closer to the edge of the field than I like to be, but that's only because the terrain did not allow us to get back off that field 20 yards like I like to. Um, it was really thick. We were on the edge of a canal, and we had a live oak and some palmettas, and that's all we had to set up on. And, and luckily, she was looking for company, and I never offended her and never challenged her. And never got confrontational with her. And and even without Adik, she still wanted to just come say hello and visit this new hen, this new voice that she had heard because she that she was not familiar with. Yep. Yeah. Well, I know sometimes when you're calling them in, especially if they got hens, sometimes they might not want to come all the way in. And uh I know you're pro staff with Apex, so they've got these new shells. Well fairly new now they've been around for a few years sure but they got these long range loads and not only apex i mean there's several other companies that's got long range loads out and um, right what are what are your thoughts on the new on this tss stuff well um i, I mean i i'm proud to say i'm an ambassador i'm the pro staff manager for apex ammunition and i am proud to be part of that company the tss revolution yeah. if you will um and, and before TSS got super popular, there were there were some other extended range loads that were out there that hit harder. They carried a tighter pattern. And he, here's my take on the whole thing. Once upon a time, I was a little fella about 10 years old, and I started turkey hunting. And my dad and I went out with some cardboard and some pheasant loads and the full choke in my gun, and we shot that gun, and quite honestly, about 35 yards was the best as we could get a good killable, effective pattern. It was about 35 yards, like I said. And um, if you had a better gun, I actually got a little a couple years later into my turkey hunting career. My my parents bought me 
a Winchester 1300 turkey gun that had an extra full choke in it. And so I migrated up to some heavier turkey loads. But even still, after patterning it and putting it on paper, 40 yards was the magic number once upon a time. That was just the magic. That was about the most you're going to get. And this is 30 years ago. Well, let's fast forward 25 years. We'll call it 27 years. All of a sudden, we got tighter constriction chokes. We have loads that have better wads. We have we have uh, TSS. We have all these loads that are clearly extending the maximum effective killing range of your shotgun. So, you know, once upon a time, the 40-yard magic number came from years and years and years of turkey hunters getting the most out of their gun was about 40 yards. So you fast forward 30 years, and we've got these loads and these chokes that are now killing out 50, 60 yards, we'll call it. Now, much past that, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about. So I'm not, I hate putting a number on it, but 15 to 20 yards longer than what 40 yards would be, 50, 50 55, 60 yards. Now, I know people that have killed them further than that. I'm not advocating that. All I know is if you take your gun to the patterning board, you have the pattern density, and if you're shooting TSS or any of the alloys that are heavier than lead, you're carrying that kinetic energy downrange. So that means it hits harder than lead, and it carries that energy to extended distances that are much past 40 to 40 yard threshold. And my, my best analogy for this is, do you buy a seven millimeter rim mag to shoot a deer at 100 yards? No, I shoot a seven mag. If I'm gonna, if I don't rifle hunt much, I'm mostly an archer anymore. I'm an archery hunter, but by golly, if I do break out old Betsy, my Black Shadow Winchester seventy seven millimeter magnum, I can kill one three hundred yards by putting it just a little high in the kill zone. But I'm not gonna stop where I shoot that deer at a hundred yards when I know the maximum effect and killing killing range of that weapon is is double that. So yeah, all all I'm asking people to do. I'm not advocating shooting turkeys 80, 90 yards and just and hail marrying turkeys because all that's going to do ultimately is maim turkeys. But what I am trying to do is to, is to is to open people's eyes to the fact that 40 is is not the is now the new 50 or 60. It's just you can right. shoot them further right. and it, and every time you squeeze the trigger, you kill them that far. Now that's being said, that doesn't mean to go buy apex shells, put them in your gun the day before turkey season, and go out there and try to kill a turkey. Do the work. Do your homework. Go out there and put those loads on paper and make sure your point of impact is true and make sure the pattern density is there for those extended ranges. On top of that, don't discount either adjustable sights that are a finer pitch sight picture or a red dot scope. Because simply put, when you start stretching it past 40 yards, you use your old, your old beaded shotgun and that's going to cover that turkey at those longer ranges, and you're not going to be able to have a finer sight picture on that bird when you're extending those ranges. When you use a 2.5 or a 3-minute-of-angle dot, or you're using that same type of 3-dot alignment sight system that's like True Glow puts out, the gobbler stoppers, I think, the gobble dots, the 3 dots, you can line those up. They're adjustable. They're very fine sight picture. They're very small dots. Do what it takes, do the homework, do the work to pattern your gun, and then put the, the proper sight or scopes on that gun so that you can make that finer sight picture and make that shot if you are going to extend those ranges. 
But don't just throw the shells in your gun and go out there and think you're going to shoot 175 yards. Because, yeah. you know, not what anybody is trying to to uh, put out there. That's not what we're trying to say. All we're saying is pattern the gun, put the right sights on the thing, the right optics, either, either or, and make sure the gun has the pattern density. And when I say pattern density, I'm talking 12 to 14 pellets in the skeletal regions of a turkey target. Not the head and neck only, the, the, the yeah. spinal, the spine, or the skull. I mean, you might hit one in the jugular and bleed him out, or you might hit one. You know, I mean, we're wanting to immobilize that turkey and put him down and when you click that trigger. So do the work and, and, and make sure your gun will do what it can do. If not, then you back those ranges up. And another thing, a key tip that I do nowadays, and this is another thing in favor of the longer range loads, is simply the fact that sometimes we misjudge distances. I've done it. I do it about every season. But the fact is, when you're shooting these these guns with these extended ranges, with these optics, with these loads, you know pattern well beyond 40 yards. What you're doing, at least, is if you do misjudge one five ten yards, you're still going to kill that turkey clean. You're not going to you're not going to maim the turkey, have it fly off, and then die three days later from lead poisoning or from from a bleeding wound or from infection. It, it, it honestly gives you a little bit of room for error, if you will. So do the work, yeah. man. And, you know, that's all I'm saying. Use technology. There's, how many times, Ryan, I kill a lot of turkeys. I'm not bragging. I'm not trying to toot my horn. I kill a lot of turkeys. And most of those turkeys are probably 40 yards and in, in, in. But how many times do we go out and get our butts whooped on a bird that's 45 or 50 yards and you just don't take oh, a yeah. shot? How many times? I can't count the times. Turkeys usually win. I don't care how good a turkey hunter you are. So why not yep. capitalize on technology and find out what your gun is actually capable of and put that to use in the field? Why is that wrong? To me, it's not. Yep. All you're doing is you're capitalizing on making that weapon more effective at a little bit longer range. Yep. I know. And like what you were saying with the uh, – the red dots, like, like you're saying, times have changed. I mean, you know, back when 40 was the range, I mean, red dots weren't around. You didn't need yeah, it. But, uh, yeah. Right. And but now, you know, the red dots and the extended range. I mean, kind of goes hand in hand. But like, you know, with that bead past 40 yards, and even at 40 yards, it's, it's still not a good sight picture. Like that bead. No, it's very, very coarse. Yeah, very coarse. Yep. Even at 40 yards, the old school beads are going to cover the head and neck of a gobbler. Right. Not saying he won't kill him, but what what I found, and I was shooting a red dot before the ranges started to really extend a little bit. What I found is shooting a red dot with a very, very, very small dot, 2.5 to 3 minute of angle dot, is it creates a fudge factor for the, for the hunter. Um, you can be anywhere around his head. But the sight picture is so fine, you're still going to catch the right or left or side of that pattern and still cleanly kill that turkey if you happen to flinch a little bit or the bird takes a step right when you squeeze the trigger. It's going to give you a little bit of room of room for error, margin for error, if you will. It, you know, aim small, miss small. And when you do yep. that, just think of it in archery terms. I mean, think of it with a bow and a pen on a sight. You know, and I shoot 70 yards with my bow. I can shoot 70 yards. And that dot, dot, my true glow sight on my bow 
is uh is is called uh diminutive um dot positioning. What's it called? It's it's basically what I, I forget the terminology. What it means is the dots start bigger at twenty, my twenty pin, and they get smaller as I go. Oh, and uh, and seventy yard pin is very, very small. It's it's half the size of the twenty yard pin. And that allows for that fine sight picture. Which is what we're going hand in hand with what you're saying. DDS, I think, is what you're looking for. The, it's uh, DDF or DDP. Yeah. Decreasing diameter. Yeah, the, the decreasing diameter pins. There you go. That's what it is for True Glow, I believe. But, yeah, it gets smaller. The longer the shot, the smaller the pin, which creates a finer sight picture. Same same technology is going into these red dots. The same, It's the same exact technique that you're trying to employ when you're finding that finer sight picture with a red dot scope. And a turkey load. Yep. Yeah. And and another, and that's the thing too, like what you were saying. I mean, you really do need to to test it out. Test out what your gun yeah. can do with loads. If you want to use Apex, I mean, if you want to use, even if you don't want to use Apex and you want to use something else, like, but you also got to remember what choke you're using because the what your gun will shoot differently different loads and different different choke combinations absolutely so you have to you have to really really figure it out if you want to get the best pattern possible that's right you got to do a little bit of tinkering and and the beautiful thing about it is again let me explain the technology behind tss tungsten super steel it's basically a two-thirds the more the weight the density of lead so basically a number five lead and lead is the equivalent of a number nine in TSS. It carries the same kinetic energy, plus it's a smaller diameter, so it has better penetration because there's less surface-to-bone contact. The pellet has less surface contact, so it creates less drag, okay? So it penetrates even better. Plus the velocities are there because there's less drag created downrange on the extended ranges because the diameter smaller creates less wind drag, thus keeping and maintaining velocity. It's it's an it's just it's just it's amazing stuff. It really is. And um, the the beauty of it all, when it comes down to it, is you'll have 400 pellets. So let's call I'm sorry, let's call it 280 number fives, and you'll have 450 mm-hmm. 500 number nines. You're doubling your pattern density. With the same kinetic energy downrange, how can you go wrong with that? You can't. You cannot go wrong. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I do like to be able to have the the option of being able to take one at fifty or even at sixty. Um, That's right. I just I don't want I don't if there's going to be a, a mistake made, I want it to be because of me. I don't want it to be because of faulty load. Yeah, right. And that's what I was saying earlier. It does it does create a little bit of margin of error for for because we all misjudge them. And fields okay. and big open timber, everybody's misjudged one. Everybody's misjudged yeah. one. Well, see, that's just like me. Like, and I think this is this year, this coming up season, I'm actually going to be using a red dot sight for the first time. I was right. kind of always one of those guys that was just like, no, nah, I don't want a red dot on my shotgun because it's a shotgun. But, right. Uh, but 
I've kind of got away from that, and I'm like, oh, well, I need I need to figure something out here because last year I missed. I think me. <laughs> me <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah, we uh, I I missed three, four turkeys last season, and I don't know why exactly, but I think I have a good idea, and. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to what we're what I was saying about you know test your gun all that stuff. Well, what I did last year before the season came in, I put a different a new stock on it, and with a pistol grip. Oh. And the sight that I had on it was always fine, and it always hit right, hit perfect. But then I don't know. I'm I'm thinking maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe I'm holding the gun different. Pulling the Absolutely. The your cheek to stock, your cheek to stock weld right. should have been different. Different. Yep. And I think that might be why. And I'm thinking that a red dot is going to fix that. And and the fact that you, I mean, I'm not calling you out on the podcast here, but did you pattern it once you put the new stock on it? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I patterned it. Okay. It, it hit. It hit fine. I mean. Okay. It was kind of. It wasn't as as good as I wanted it to be, but I was like, well, that's still pretty good, though. And Right. And that's where you go, what's pretty good? Is pretty good 45? Is it 35? Is it 40? Is it 50? That's where you have to identify 12 to 14 pellets in the skeletal region. And, look, you know, I have to – I have to. I feel like after all this talk about extending ranges and, you know, and and lengthening the ranges of your turkey gun, I'm not advocating running around shooting at birds 80 yards and 90 yards just to hail Mary turkeys because you think these new TSS Apex or, or Federals or any other brands that make them. I'm not advocating that at all. I'm advocating get your gun out there, pattern it, tinker with some choke tubes, tinker with the sights and possibly optics, and find out what's the maximum effective killing range of your weapon, period. That's all I'm saying. And it will be... If you if you step your game up with these different loads, you will see it will be a little longer than you probably ever expected it to be. And that's and that's all I'm saying. If it's 45, if you get if it's 50, if it's 60, and I don't and I honestly I don't push that envelope much past the 60. That's that magic number in my head. Have I heard of guys yeah. killing them way further than that? Absolutely. It's not something I'm going out in the woods to do to think. Well, I I don't got to get him 60 yards. That's where I'm gonna kill him. I'm trying to get that turkey in close. Trust me. I didn't bust my butt for all these years to be the caller that I am and the woodsman that I am to sit there and, and just use a Hail Mary as a as a end game to just kill the turkey. The romance is calling the turkey in the gun range. And if the gun range is a little extended, that's fine, but just identify that extension of your of your, your range. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think some of those guys, I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to bash anybody because I don't care. I mean, I just want people to hunt. That's right. Kill turkeys. But I think some people may not – some some of the people that may not like TSS probably like reaping turkeys. So Might be. They might be. And and it's it's kind of like – Or fanning. Yeah. yeah. Right. To me, there's – yeah. To me, there's no difference in shooting a turkey at 80 yards and shooting one at two feet. I think that's kind of the same. You know what I mean? As long as the gun will do it effectively, yeah. I mean, whatever, oh, yeah. whatever. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I think we can go ahead and start wrapping this up. Um, 
Sounds great. Great conversation with you. Uh, are you ready? You getting ready for the, the NWTF? I am. I am. You know, we switched gears the last three or four years into the scenarios and the finals, and uh, I've been working with my scenarios and and uh, did very well at the Georgia State. Um, Dave Owens and I tied for the Georgia Open, which what I called in, and old Dave beat me by half a point in the call-off, and Dave's the reigning Grand National Open champion, so no complaints there. Um and that's the only, unfortunately that's the only contest I'm going to get. I got to warm up to, but I feel confident in what I've got. The uh, uh, my routines, my presentations that I've been working on. Um, Lord willing, I'm in the finals. Um, I, I, I feel good about what I'm doing and the calls I've got built, and you know everything that's that. I, I think it'll come together good. All you can do is go out there and do your best, and. Uh, let the judges write down a score, and it is what it is. It's you know, it's it's very subjective because humans are judging it. And um, the beauty of it all is, for me, a lot of people's year culminates at the Grand National, the the, the National Convention, and all it does for me is one more one more chance to get on the stage and work my calls because a week later I'm going to be in the woods with my kid trying to kill turkeys. So. You know what I mean? That doesn't. That is not. Oh yeah. The end game. Yeah. I mean, I I I want to win it as bad as anybody else wants to win it. Wants to win it, but I'm not um, defined by that contest because I'm ready to go kill turkeys and it's so close together. I mean, you're talking. You know, literally, we leave on Sunday. We uh, to come back from Nashville, and then on Friday we're headed to the woods for the weekend to chase turkeys for the U season. So there there there's a. That that line gets very blurred <laughs> from getting on that yeah. stage and putting this, you know. And stage calling to me is no different than what we do in the woods. That's another whole hour conversation. All we're doing is simply cramming. We're cramming and painting a picture in a minute for each call, or in the scenarios for three minutes for four to five calls, and what turkeys would do in the woods. And we're doing it exactly like turkeys would do it in the woods. And we're just we're very limited on our time that we are able to present that call. It's a little different, obviously, when you're working a turkey or you're talking to turkeys. Um, time is no, there's no time limit. There's no time is not of the, you know, uh, you're just talking turkey with another turkey, and that's the romance for me, man. Is just is communicating with these birds and understanding their language well enough to truly conversate with them. Not call at them, you call with them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you conversate with them, and that's the beauty and the romance of, of turkey hunting for me. And I, you know, I love to hunt everything. I love to bow hunt deer. I love to duck hunt. I love to squirrel hunt. But I love to communicate. There's no other animal, in my opinion, and I've not elk hunted yet. That's on my bucket list because I actually been working my turkey calls and and learning how to bugle and cow call on my turkey calls to one day elk hunt with my bow, but. But ultimately, there's no outside of an elk. I don't know that there's any bird just you communicate, you get response from, and you're able to have a conversation with like a wild turkey, and that's that's the romance in it for me. Yeah, yeah, I tell you, I, there ain't nothing like it. I mean, you can't aside from elk, like you're saying. I think that's about the only other thing that comes close. But and and another thing I'll say too, like you were saying with the calling and the stage calling and turkey hunting. To me, they're exactly the same. I mean, there's little nuances that are a little different. But for those guys out there that maybe think that, I don't know. But if you want to be 
if you want to get better at right. calling, if, even if you whether you want to be able to speak the language, so to speak, I guess, or if you want to just get better in general at calling, you can go get in the contest, and I guarantee yep. you it will make you better. And that, that, that's right. That's the beauty of contest calling. In my opinion, all it does is allows you to recreate turkey sounds that you want to create on demand. Now, you have to understand what the sounds are and when to use them. That's a whole other encyclopedia volume. But the fact is that you can recreate a kiki run, a cluck and purr, a whine, a fly-down cackle, a tree call, an assembly yelp, an excited yelp, a plain yelp, a cluck, on demand. It gives you the confidence. And the only thing that I've ever found even close to being the pressure that you feel when you're on the stage is when you're calling to a gobbler. And quite honestly, calling to a gobbler is a little easier than calling to a set of human judges because gobblers, unless you recreate by accident an alarm putt, you know, they're not judging you for your sound or your rhythm or your cadence. That said, that gobbler, you can make that gobbler do something he didn't want to do if you do create the right sound, rhythm, or cadence or pitch or tone. So that's the beauty of controlling the call and mastering a call, whether it's friction or it's air, and being able to put that in the woods the same you did as on, on a stage. I think there's more pressure on a stage than there is in the woods with the real thing. And that's what makes oh, yeah. you – that can make you a better hunter slash caller. Not just not just a caller, not just a caller, a hunter and a caller. Yeah. And, and what I like most about it, going getting in calling contests and stuff, is not – the getting up there calling or having the chance to win, which I mean, if you win, it's awesome. But, but the thing I like most about it is being able to spend time with everybody else that's got the same exact views and ideas as you do. All that that's right. I've made some wonderful friends on the trail over the last 17, 18 years that I've been calling regularly. I mean, I made friendships that's lasted the whole time. Um, I've got to hunt great places by meeting cool people that invited me. I've invited those same people to Florida, and a lot of it's been on public ground because I don't have a lease in Florida, but we've made it happen in some, some very, very difficult situations on public ground and got some Osceola's. Matter of fact, matter of fact we, we didn't get into one of the things we talked about offline was just my schedule, but I've got uh, a couple of great friends coming down to Florida, and we're hunting public ground. I got... Three of us got drawn, four of us got drawn for a public WMA, which I'm not going to name. <laughs> but uh, I've got two buddies from South Carolina, a buddy from Kentucky, Sean Wright from Kentucky, Kevin Kirkpatrick from South Carolina, Doug Moore from South Carolina, and my best friend Chris Chancey from here in Central Florida, who has very limited time to get to go hunt. We're all teaming up. My buddy Simon Ellis as well, another Floridian that's, that's on Woodhaven with me, one of my Woodhaven guys. And we're all teaming up. We're going to film, and we're going to hunt the crap out of some public land and try to get these guys their birds. So, anyways, going back to what you were saying, it's just made some great friendships over the years through the wild turkey, through through calling contests. You know, it's just made some of the best friends I've had for a long, long time. I wouldn't trade it for anything. You and I became friends through contest calling, I believe. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, that was that was the reason. I think I 
I think I tried to contact you because I wanted to get into calling contest. So that's right. Yep. Yep. And and quite honestly, you'll find a lot of good folks that will help you out. They'll help you with your calling. I mean, like I said, I've I've been trying to help you along your way a little bit along your journey um, with different sounds and cuts and tensions on reeds and stuff. And and uh, it, it just creates a, a bond and a friendship. And it's hard to break that friendship. You know, you take care of each other and be friends and continue to love and the tradition of turkey hunting, then you can't go wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, Scott, I, I really appreciate you getting on here. Um, if you want, go ahead and throw your plugs out there. Let us know what you got going on, where people can find your, your stuff at. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. Well, Hunt Quest Season 2 is, is being uploaded every every Friday. Um, I think I'll be on Episode 5 this week, and this is the, what is the date today? January 30th, Ron? January 30th. So I don't know if that will... Yeah. That'll give people an idea where we're at when they actually hear this thing. Um, but we've got about 10, 12 episodes hunting Kansas, Texas, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, um, South Carolina again, Texas. I other state of Texas. Anyway, several states, a lot of turkeys killed. Um, actually done a couple of deer hunts on the show. Um, check it out on YouTube. So all you got to do is type in Hunt Quest on YouTube. Got tons of turkey calling tips, um, turkey hunting tips. Um, I have an app out that's a really cool tool called Turkey Tech. Um, Turkey Tech gives audio of wild turkeys, which to me is instrumental. It has audio of me running a pot call, me of audio of me running a mouth call. It has video instruction of mouth and pot calls. It has uh, written tips on when the calls you're used, when turkeys use the call, a definition of it, when you should use it in a hunting situation. And the coolest part of the whole app is it has a recorder built into it. So you can record yourself and then loop it with wild turkeys or loop it with me if you want to see how you're sounding with tone and rhythm and cadence. Um, check out my DVDs, Mouth Call Magic 1 and 2. Those are still for sale on my website, scottellishunting.com. And and I, I think that's about it, brother. Find me on Facebook on Hunt Quest with Scott Ellis. Find me on Instagram, Scott underscore C underscore Ellis. And follow the adventure. And um, I appreciate you having me on, brother. It's always a pleasure talking turkey with you and you picking my brain and me picking your brain. And um, I thoroughly enjoy it. And hopefully we put some stuff out there for people that might help them. They might pick up a tip along the way. Oh, yeah, man. Man, yeah. I, I really appreciate you getting on here, too. It's uh, I just love talking turkey, man. And That's right. You're a pretty good guy to learn from, I think. Well, I appreciate it, brother. I appreciate our friendship, and thanks for having me on board. All right, man.